Tonight I'm pleased to welcome back Craig Heber. He's going to discuss tuna fishing and how to ensure sustainability for consumers. He is the Deputy Director of the Nature Conservancy's Indo-Pacific Tuna Program. He was born and raised in San Pedro. He's part of a Croatian commercial tuna fishing tradition in the harbor area. He's worked as a fisheries biologist for NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, Southwest Region in their Sustainable Fisheries Division for 18 years, and he served as the lead biologist for the fishery management plan for the U.S. West Coast fisheries for highly migratory species, of which tuna are among those. He has 25 years of experience with fisheries management and research on tunas, billfish, and sharks. He spent eight years working overseas with the Inter-American Tropical Tuna Commission in Manta, Ecuador, and Mayaguez, Puerto Rico, and three years in Micronesia. And there he was working with the Fishery Authority, Fishing Authority of the Federated States of Micronesia. We've had a long partnership with Craig. He's helped on us, us on a number of projects. Please join me in welcoming Craig Heber. Okay, thank you. Thank you all for coming out. I uh, see a lot of uh, high school students here, I'm told. That's excellent. I'm San Pedro High School graduate and went on to Humboldt State Fisheries degree. And so if uh, working in the ocean and the marine environment is a passion of yours, uh, keep at it. And I'd be happy to talk to any of you about uh, my career track as well, if that's something you're interested in. So as Jerry mentioned, I'm uh, a native of San Pedro, California. My great-grandfather, grandfather, uncles were all tuna fishermen. I have a brother who's a squid fisherman now. And uh, two other brothers were captains on the Catalina Express. So we have a, a long connection with the, uh, the ocean and the fisheries. And I went another route and decided to, to go into research and management. Um, and now, uh, after a, a long career, I'm uh, ending my last chapter working for the Nature Conservancy. So tonight, I'm going to tell you a little bit about um, our uh, ocean program, our Indo-Pacific tuna program, give you a little overview about the different types of fishing techniques to catch tuna, and a little bit about our main project, which is how to track and monitor the catch on board these boats. I'll talk about a technology that we're trying to, to uh, pilot in the, in the Central Pacific Ocean with some of our uh, Pacific Island partners, and uh, I'll have a few videos uh, to show you what actually some of this uh, footage looks like. So let's get started. Um, the Nature Conservancy, many of you, if you know the Nature Conservancy, has primarily a uh, land-based conservation group. They're the largest conservation group in the world. Uh, we operate in 70 different countries now. Um, the, the business model of the Nature Conservancy on the land was to really purchase, uh, you know, habitats that were worthy of protection or under duress from being developed, and then turn those properties back into community use and sustainable use. Um, now we have pivoted in the last five years or so into taking that model and to expand it in the ocean. So we have a 25-year presence working in coastal fisheries and coral reefs and other areas in the, in the Pacific. Um, and then for the last two years, we've actually started focusing on tuna. So I was hired specifically to bring a tuna program to the Nature Conservancy. Our, our base is in Palau, um, but we have operations in Guam, Micronesia, Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea, and many of the other islands where tuna fishery is a way of life and one of the only 
for many of these small islands, sole sources of income. So getting it right in terms of sustainability and making sure that there's tuna for future generations is very important to them. Our motto, our vision statement, if you will, is healthy oceans, healthy people, healthy fish. And that's kind of where we, we, we integrate. So this, in general, when I talk about the Western Central Pacific, um, I was, this map shows you the, the, the area that we call the Western Central Pacific, and then on the right-hand side is the Eastern, uh, Eastern Pacific Ocean. And so these tuna fisheries together constitute almost 3.5 million tons of tuna are harvested in these zones. 56% um, of the entire global catch of tuna comes from the Western Central Pacific, uh, the area that we're operating in. Um, and it's a, it's a tremendous uh, fishery that drives the tuna that you eat in cans, also the tuna that you get at, sush at sushi restaurants, the tuna you get in, in Costco to grill uh, on your barbecue, all of this predominantly driven by these, these fisheries in these oceans. In particular for our project, um, we're working in these specific islands and I really wanted to show this graphic to show you the, the remoteness of, of where these islands are operating. And, these are areas of great um, of upwelling and divergence of currents that have tremendous productivity, and that productivity drives a food base that creates these global tuna fisheries. Um, and so these are some of the areas that we are working with our Pacific Island Fisheries Department partners to establish healthy, sustainable fisheries through advanced monitoring and other uh, best practices techniques. This will show you the, what we call the exclusive economic zone. So around these countries, they have a 200-mile water that they actually can lease out. This is part of their national sovereignty. The United Nations Law of the Sea Treaty set out these, these zones. Um, in particular, these darker areas are what we call the high seas high zones. And so these are not areas that are controlled by any countries. And this is where a lot of... Uh, Licensed, unlicensed fishing takes place, and this is one of the problem areas you'll see from a slide here that um, we're concerned about. Here we go. So as I mentioned, the value and the harvest, almost 2.8 million metric tons are captured in this fishery, um, mainly these tropical species, skipjack, yellowfin, big eye, and albacore tunas, and it's about almost a $5.5 billion fishery. A lot of it goes to canned tuna. So what you get at Costco, Trader Joe's, some of these, these canned tunas are usually skipjack or yellowfin tuna. Most of it that's harvest in the Western Central Pacific, but it's canned not in the islands, it's canned in other areas, um, but they're destined for the global markets in Europe, in Asia, and in the United States. The United States is still the largest consumer of canned tuna in the world, um, so a lot of that product ends up on that market. This will give you a little bit of an idea of these species that I just referenced, the magnitude of the global catch in the western central Pacific area. So the blue bar there is skipjack tuna. That's the predominant species that you see in the cans. Thankfully for the sustainability of stocks, skipjack is a very highly productive tuna. It matures very quickly. Uh, sometimes around a year you get the sexual maturity of, of skipjack, so it's, it's fostered, it's been built the foundation of these large capture fisheries. Um, the species that have later maturing schedules are the ones that are having more of a stock status issues. And down below you'll see in yellow the yellowfin tuna and the big eye tuna, so those 
are predominantly, the big eye in red are longline catches that you have for your sushi and sashimi markets. Uh, there are some juvenile big eye that are captured in the Persane fishery that are a concern for sustainability also, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. And then this will give you a little idea of the catch by gears. Um, our project is monitoring longline vessels. That's the, the bottom graph. Um, but again, skipjack is the big driver, and Persane fisheries are the driver of that capture for the canned tuna market. So this is going to give you a quick video of what these Persane fisheries and these volumes in skipjack look like. It's uh, two researchers that I work with, Davey Tano and Jeff Moore, took this uh, video as part of a research project. Um, so go ahead and we'll roll this one and see if it works. So these are all skipjack tuna that have been pursed up in a pursing net. It's uh, the magnitude of these fisheries can be pretty staggering at times when you see the, the amounts. And then these are some larger yellowfin tuna that are uh, in the net along with uh, that. So this is the primary gear that targets this cannery grade, these cannery grade species. So those yellowfin right there are probably about 80 to 100 pounds. That sound is the tail beats of a skipjack. Okay. So, thankful for Persane Fisheries, a lot of all the vessels are required to come into these offloading ports in the Pacific Islands. So we have a pretty good idea of what the capture levels are um, in terms of those fisheries, and we have observers, or human observers, on board all of those boats. But we also have issues in terms of other vessels that don't come to port. And this is a recent uh, piece of work that was done by uh, Global Fishing Watch uh, with Oceana, SkyTruth, and Google as partners. And this really gives you a snapshot, and I apologize it's blurry, but this shows you these are actual vessel monitoring pings that are coming from different fishing vessels and carrier vessels that are fishing in this area for a block of time. I believe it's about uh, a six-month block of time. And this is really what we want to focus on in terms of our monitoring. This outline there is the economic zone of French Polynesia, one of our partner countries, and all of that lighted area is fishing activity that's taking outside, in their, outside their zone. So French Polynesia does not uh, license any domestic foreign fleets in their water. It's all local boats. So this is one of the challenges we have in the Western Central Pacific is, is there's a lot of effort, there's a lot of capacity, um, and some of that is difficult to monitor. Um, and so we are trying to then focus on the longline component. The longline component has a lot of issues that I think are coming to light in a lot of different venues. Um, one of them has been um, the issue of uh, bycatch, so what they're catching in terms of not just the target tunas, the, the, the way that people are, uh, the social issues on board the vessels. And so what we are really trying to do is enter the seafood traceability chain, and I know Kim and the Aquarium have done a lot of work on highlighting good seafood traceability and good programs that are working that. So you have a vessel operator and a lot of the traceability from when the fish is caught to when you eat it on your plate or buy it in the store goes through all these different sectors. Um, 
we're working on the fisheries, fisheries, reg, fisheries regulator component. So basically what we're doing is tracking these longline caught fish from when they bite the hook to when they're landed in these Pacific Island ports and they're put on planes or ships and they're sent to the markets for Japan, China, Taiwan, US, European Union. But a lot of these vessels, about 235,000 tons of those uh, landed in the Western Pacific with a very high dollar value. So you have a large volume of fish captured in the Persane fishery, but a, but a smaller volume, but almost an equal revenue value because of the price. And so this is where the final chapter comes in. In the US, as we know, most of the seafood that we consume in the United States is consumed in restaurants. And so the consumers have a real big role in terms of asking for sustainable seafood, um, supporting restaurants that buy sustainable seafood. And so our whole goal is to track tuna from the hook to the dock and from the dock to your plate. And what I'm going to talk about next is this actual project we're working on from the hook to the boat. So this is our cooperative longline project. This is in the Federated States of Micronesia. And this is what a uh, long-range Taiwanese uh, longline boat looks like. These vessels set about 2,500 hooks a day. And there's 3,600 or more of these vessels fishing in that western central Pacific. So it's a, it's a tremendous amount of hooks and fishing efforts that could easily scale up to big problems in terms of bycatch species such as sharks and turtles and seabirds. So our effort now is to really shine the light or illuminate what the target catch as well as the non-target or the bycatch component is. So our goal was to really work with these fishing companies and these fishing authorities to bring together industry, the fishery authority, the power of the Nature Conservancy to raise funds and bring technical assistance to really start to integrate these programs. So it's kind of like seed, a seed money. We go in, we develop infrastructure, and then hopefully we get a cost recovery where the vessels will start as part of their license fee uh, contributing to this program year after year. We have a five country project um, at this point, and then we have three, vessel, uh, three systems on board, vessels in Japan, um, Palau, Federated States of Micronesia, Marshall Islands, and the Solomon Islands. And then we also work very closely with the regional science and management uh, bodies uh, that are in the Western Central Pacific. They're the ones that, when we collect the data, they use it for stock assessment, they use it to derive conservation measures, and they also have enforcement and monitoring capabilities. So all this data goes to science and it also goes to enforcement. So what we really brought to the project is we were installing these systems. So this is a picture of one of the cameras being installed on the boat. That's one of our local technicians in Palau. We brought the funding support from the Nature Conservancy side to help hire some coordinators, what we're calling EM analysts. So you collect this data on board the vessels. Instead of having a human observer actually making the notes and coming back to the office and said, this is what the boat caught, these camera systems are placed on the vessel and they have hard drives, the, the, the images are stored on the hard drives. They come back to what we call data review centers and then they convert this raw video image into actionable data. And then at the end, we actually use the data then with these regional science support to generate summary target net and catch and we compare them with their logbooks, with the observers if they're on board and the EM data and we also have compliance elements. So if they've violated any aspect, if there's shark finning that's going on board the boat, 
if they have illegally taken a species that they're not supposed to take, like a turtle, or if there's dumping of plastics, or if there's illegal fueling that goes on, all of that now it can be reported as part of it. So this is our first data review center in, in Palau, and we had two uh, fisheries observers that were trained, and now they, they spend uh, a month in the data review center, and then they go out to sea for a month, so they're rotating, getting some time, and get some salt on their gills, and then they're back in the data review centers. This is what a fresh fish Taiwanese longliner looks like, and these vessels travel tremendous distances very small, tight working quarters, not something that the human observers really look forward to getting on board. So it wasn't a hard sell to kind of talk to them about transitioning to some, some camera work. Um, there's language barriers, there's safety issues. Um, it's a very dangerous job being a human, being an observer on board these boats. There's been several fatalities and injuries. Um, and there's also questions about the integrity of the data. Um, cameras don't they don't need any kind of, uh, let's put it this way, they don't take bribes. There's not, you can't threaten a camera, you can't bribe a camera. And this is what our vessels look like in the Solomon Islands. These are a mixture of those different vessels. So these are the fishery officials actually on board the, the Taiwanese vessels and before they go out to sea, they have to have an inspection that the system has been running and not tampered with. And they are putting the hard drive, so these are hard drive driven systems. There's no transmission via satellite. That's something that we're looking at down the road when the technology catches up, but at this point it's all physically stored and it goes from the vessel to the data review center. These are what the, the whole system looks like. Um, it's, it's about $10,000 per system. Uh, remote maintenance, you can actually, because there's a satellite link, uh, all the servicing can be done in the, in the fisheries offices. Um, on the left is where all the hard drives are stored. There's four, there's two main and two backup. There's four cameras, that's one of the Satlink is one of the companies we work with, that's one of the cameras. The monitor screen is in the wheelhouse with the fishermen and it has the CPUE built into the screen. Um, again, these are 24 hour, seven day a week systems. So we recording at night, we record when they're in port. We've had instances when vessels have um, discarded trash inside lagoons and we've recorded that and there's been action that's taken. And they can go two to seven months on board with that system recording 24 hours a day. Um, and all of the footage has a, what we call a watermark or tamper-proof mark of the date, the position, the time. So these are the views from the vessel system. The upper left is a camera we have on the stern of the boat to watch the setting. The uh, upper right is the views of the, um, the hauling deck where the fish come on board. We have a second backup camera on the hauling deck, and then the bottom right is the, what that gear looks like in the wheelhouse, and on the left we have a, what we call a UPS, or a uninterrupted power source, so if the generator goes out, we don't lose any, any data until it's back up. So one of the keys to really getting the, the countries and the partners to, to work in this is, on the bottom right, that's the form that the observers were taking out on board, and this is the type of observations they make on board the type of fish, what the fate of that fish was, whether it was released alive, released dead, whether it was retained for harvest. Um, and then that has actually been built into the software in the upper right. These are the office observers looking at those forms per se and make, taking that video imagery and turning it into data. So you basically review that 
data and then make declarations, yellowfin tuna, big-eye tuna, a white-tipped shark, a seabird or whatever that bycatch was at. So this is going to give you a little slice of the quality of, of this camera. This is our stern setting camera on a Korean longliner. So go ahead and roll that. And so basically we're, we're also recording the number of hooks and the baits they're using. Um, and so for many of you who have probably never seen this, this is what a tuna longline operation looks like. This is, takes about 14 hours to set the 2,500 hooks. And the boat steams along at two to three knots. And that's, you know, these, these long lines can be anywhere from, you know, 50 to 100 miles at sea times 3,600. All right. And then sometimes we have crew members who haven't really read the memo yet. And this will show you, go ahead and roll it, uh, what happens. Any system can be compromised. And this is obviously a crew member who didn't want us to see something. but. The beauty of this is that you know they we see this obviously so this they have agreements with the countries that this is a violation so we can uh, if they do that then they're not going to be fishing too much longer in the in the Pacific Islands but we have these are a part of the project where you're getting industry to come on board and so you have an early adoption program where you say let's work together some of your crews may actually you know not want to have these cameras on board fishermen in general have a history of of wanting to be on the sea with, without any big brother watching them. But, you know, that era is really a bygone era now for us. There's just, the oceans are under too much stress. There's too, many, too much capacity, too many boats fishing. The impacts on sharks, turtles, other bycatch species has been too dramatic with all of the world fisheries. So having this monitoring level is really um, what's, what's happening now and is going to be part of the future. So I'm just going to show you a couple other views. This is the camera view looking down on the working deck. So go ahead and roll that. And this will be uh, just to show you the clarity. This is an opa or a moonfish. And, uh, and this is, you can get this in the market here in the US. Our Hawaii fleet catches quite a bit. And you can catch these actually in Southern California. It's a recreational catch. And they also catch it as part of the, the, the commercial fisheries in Southern California. And one of the things that this, we can do is these, uh, the software has a digital measuring tool, so we can actually take the length of these animals, uh, which is another early knock on this system, was, well, how are you going to get you know, hard part samples? How are you going to get length frequency samples that you need for science? And so we, can, we have a calibration mat. Before the vessel goes out to sea, we actually calibrate that camera with a grid so we can take measurements so we don't lose any of that valuable biological data. Um, and this is really one of the you know, big concerns of a lot of tuna fisheries is their impact on um, turtles and seabirds and sharks in particular. Those are the three groups that, uh, that um, with all these hooks in the water, have had the biggest impact. So this, um, there's a lot of work that goes into proper release techniques um, to really educating the fishermen um, and the owners about um, not keeping turtles and releasing turtles. So go ahead and roll the video on this one. This will show. This is the turtle coming up and the line cut. Um, this will show another uh, a, a bycatch species of concern. This is an oceanic white tip. Um, and 
This species in particular has had really dramatic declines in its population, mainly because of the persane fisheries in the tropical tunas. They, uh, oceanic white tips tend to be very pelagic and follow tuna schools, and so they get wrapped up in the nets, and their, their population has really uh, plummeted. These are another species that is required to be released. Um, you catch a you know, they don't catch as many in the longline fishery, but when they do, it's, a, it's an event of note. So go ahead and roll that. Doing okay. So you'll see the, the shark come up here. You'll notice the white tip on its fin. That's real distinctive for these oceanic white tips. They're going to pull it up tight to the boat. And he grabbed the, the line to cut it. And it'll drop back off. They're pretty tough in terms of if you release them without gaffing them, they're going to survive. But this is the kind of thing that, without the cameras on board, we've never really had a chance to, to view this kind of footage. Um, and so it's going to really allow us to, um, to uh, really drill down on best practices and bring in the fishermen to, to, to talk about best practices in terms of increasing survivor and release when you have these animals. This one here is one of the, one of the the challenges we have now, because of all these waters down there have been declared shark sanctuary, so none of the commercial boats can keep sharks. But what's happening is now they're cutting the line, but they cut the line when the shark is quite a ways from the boat, so we're not able to actually get the shark close enough to the boat to identify it. And we have a problem with what we call trailing gear, so these sharks are swimming around with larger pieces of monofilament. So with this video evidence, we're now working to change the regulations to where we have them pull them closer to the boat. So one, we can identify the shark because that is valuable information for the conservation measures. And two, so that they reduce the amount of line. But until that happens, this is the standard practice now. I'll go ahead and roll it. When you have a tuna on the line, it's typically going straight down so that you know it's a target tuna. When you have a shark or another species, the line is way out. And you'll see the aspect of that on the boat. And then you'll see they rec recognize it's the shark. And they're pulling on it. And so a crew member was going to grab the, the scissors and walk up and cut that. So in their mind, they're following the rules. It's a shark-free zone. They're releasing those animals. And away they go. One of the elements that we've also are uh, utilizing this project is we're putting a camera as high as we can up on the uh, the mast in the, in the vessel so we can get a better perspective of any other vessels that may come around. So part of the challenge that you saw in that picture of all those white lights around the area is there's a lot of vessels that will catch tuna and then load them onto transshipment vessels that may or may not be licensed or going to legal markets. So we're trying to use this camera system to, to, uh, to get a better uh, identification. Go ahead and roll it so you'll see. Uh, the perspective of this camera, it's a lower frame per second, but it's got a wider perspective. So now instead of you know, one or two patrol vessels, we have, when this ramps up, we have these cameras to take a wider view of all these vessels fishing out there. So just to wrap up to date, we've, put, uh, we've had about 210 
trips that have been recorded of that, 847 sets have, have been recorded with the cameras. We've analyzed about 30% of that. Um, the Nature Conservancy doesn't see the data. We're, we're part of the project, but all the data is owned by the fisheries of the islands and the fishery agencies. But we are helping them to put together a, an analysis of that catch versus observers on board versus the log books that are kept for those trips to kind of see how they compare and to give some guidance. Um, we placed about 25 of those trips have had both observers and the cameras on board. We've also are doing some ran, uh, random audits of the full trip reviews by um, professional observers um, to kind of check the quality of the data that's being worked on. And then we have a lot of project management that we do with the actual fishery authority where we're tracking the vessel movements and the, the rate of review. And also we have calls every uh, two weeks with all the project partners. And the last thing I really want to talk about is one of the things that's really constraining this tool from scaling up to, to a larger chunk of those 3,600 boats is it's a difficult and slow and inefficient to review video manually. So we've taken the observer off the boat, we put him in the office, we've provided a, a, a record of the trip. There are vessel speed characteristics that help us focus right to where the actual fishing starts for reviewing the catch. But really, the Nature Conservancy is invested now in trying to automate some of the data review. And this is not just the Nature Conservancy. There's, there's lots of different groups around the world. We have a partnership with uh, Silicon Valley and up in our San Francisco office. So we have Google partners. Um, and we're working to try to automate some of the review using algorithm development and machine learning. And so we actually have uh, put together a, a prize to you know, instead of the standard, you know, we want um, a deliverable from a company that's going to automate this review and we get five bids and we choose one company and you may or may not get the product you want. We actually have an open source competition. The Nature Conservancy put a $150,000 prize to do this open source competition and we had 2,900 teams around the world compete for this prize. And we have an algorithm now that actually detects um, when there's a fish on the deck, um, it'll tell you whether it's a tuna, whether it's a shark, um, and that algorithm will also give you the time, date, and position that that animal um, was, was caught. And so what's gonna happen now in the future is instead of having to manually rip through that footage, this algorithm will be built into a software package that will actually spit out a whole spreadsheet of what your actual catch events and then the observers in the office will be able to just focus on those elements. So our take home messages for tuna long line trips, this is really becoming the tool that I think is gonna be popular all across the oceans that where any long line fleets are fishing for tuna. Uh, as I mentioned, poor living conditions on board, um, long hours, language barriers, data integrity issues, um, and I also think that, uh, you know, as these things become more cost-effective and our auto data automation uh, ticks up, I think we're going to, um, we're going to see that uh, be a, a tool that's applicable to a lot more vessels. Our next steps, so we're, work, we're having a second round with our automation review challenge. We're working with some of the software companies um, in this space to take the algorithm and make it into a usable software package for review. We're also working with the countries to 
pass regulations in their fisheries law that allow the evidence collected by these cameras to be used to prosecute violations. And we're looking for opportunities to scale this up to, again, that fleet size of 3,600 boats you mentioned. Where, you know, so part of it is a cost recovery where the Nature Conservancy has provided the donor funds to kickstart this project, to build the infrastructure, develop the capacity, and then this will be passed on to the fishermen as a price of, of fishing in that zone. And then we'll determine whether, you know, at some point we continue with reviewing the entire trip or when you scale up to that size with automation, I think there's going to be some protocols that allow us to review a lot more of the trips than we are. So I think I'm going to leave it there. Jerry, I don't know what our time frame is to ask questions. Yeah, why don't, why don't we take some questions?